God, thank you that you do make beautiful things and you make beautiful things out of us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make beautiful things out of the offering. Um, Lord, as we go into the fall and um, kind of a new adventure, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would be responsive to your spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of us um, uh, telling us uh, what we get to give, what you'd like us to give, that, Lord, our lives could be an offering, our, our possessions could be an offering, everything could be an offering given to you. And God, sometimes to us that feels like death, and yet your wind comes along and picks up those seeds and scatters them throughout the fields, and then you make beautiful things out of the dust. For you have inhabited our gifts with your very self. Lord God, we pray that you would do that with this sermon now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's great to see you. Last week we preached uh, from Matthew chapter 21, in which Jesus suddenly comes to his temple and uh, tells a story about the son of a vineyard owner that comes to his father's vineyard and the tenants in the vineyard decide to kill him. We ended with a movie clip about a bride and a groom, which, by the way, was not an inappropriate change of metaphor because the next story that Jesus tells, the one that we're going to look at today, um, is about a wedding feast. So let's pick up uh, where we left off. The, the clip is from a movie titled Original Sin, not for family viewing, however remarkable for theological viewing, Antonio Banderas plays a wealthy Cuban plantation owner named Luis, who sends away for an American mail-order bride named Julia Russell. On the passage across the Atlantic, a harlot in cahoots with a crook learns of Julia's plans, disposes of Julia, and takes her place as an imposter. The harlot's name is Bonnie Castle, played by Angelina Jolie. Well, Luis marries the imposter, who he thinks is his bride, who is his bride because they do get married, and he loves her with all of his heart. After several months, when her act is being exposed by circumstance, Bonnie, posing as Julia, plans to kill Luis and take all of his inheritance. In this scene, you're about to see they're sitting at a table. She's given her bridegroom a cup of poison in uh, uh, what looks like a cup of coffee, then she realizes that he knows. He knows it was all an act and that she plans to kill him. And she also realizes that he could kill her. Like a play. All of it. Lies. From the moment I met you. Not all of it. Do you laugh on me, behind my back, the two of you? Do you laugh on me for how stupid I have been, how... how blind? No. Laugh now when I tell you this. I loved you, Julia. Julia is not here. Julia is dead. And laugh. When I tell you that I still love you. No. No, not me. You don't love me. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You. Not Julia Russell. Not Bonnie Castle. You. I love you as I know you. Because I As you are, good and bad, better and worse. <laughs> I told you this already, but you didn't believe me. Tonight you will. To us. A short life, an exciting life. Don't do this. No other one. No other love but you.
from first to last. Start to finish. Don't change, Julia. Don't ever change. No, 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 no! Last week I said, that's what it looks like. The moment that Jesus suddenly comes to his temple. The moment that he transforms the harlot into his bride. The moment that the vineyard becomes fruitful. Now I want you to see something else. In that moment, there was a transaction. Something was transferred from her to him. Death was transferred from her to him, and life was transferred from him to her. And not just life, but faith in love. To put it in theological terms, righteousness was imputed to her. So she wasn't proud of her righteousness. She knew that it was a gift from him, paid for with his very life. She was stripped of her arrogance and clothed with his love as she bore the fruit of love, crying, I love you, 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 she cried in freedom. Love had become her nature. Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus enters the temple where he tells the story of the vineyard involving a father, a son, and a bunch of ornery people. And then he tells a story involving a father, a son, and a bunch of ornery people, the story of the wedding banquet, Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Literally, they did not want to come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Well, it's kind kind of a crazy story, especially that part at the end about the guy that gets kicked out of the banquet for breaking the dress code, right? But I would remind you that the story is about a wedding banquet. This is a picture of my wedding banquet. There, there I am. It was amazing grace that she, she married me. I think it was the happiest day of my life. And that night, I covered her nakedness with myself. In fact, in the Old Testament, that's how men uh, p- proposed. Uh, they would cover a woman with their garment. <laughs> Not themselves, the garment symbolized something. They would cover a woman with, their, with a garment like Boaz covered Ruth. In scripture, a man is meant to be a woman's covering and a woman is meant to be a man's treasure. So that night after the banquet, we consummated uh, the covenant and I think that's the very best part of the party. Well anyway, in Jesus' day, 
they did things in a little different order. Everyone would come to the banquet, the bride and groom would enter the wedding chamber, they'd consummate the covenant, and then they'd whisper to the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom would then go out to the banquet hall and he would say to everybody, they did it, time to party! And they would feast for an entire week. An entire week, they would party. So getting invited to the king's son's wedding banquet was really a big deal. And my wedding banquet was really a big deal. We rented a warehouse down on Brighton Boulevard, served roast beef, beer, danced to accordion music. All were invited, the good and the bad. That's my cousin Tim in the tie there in the background, my cousin Steve right in front of him. Those guys built this like beer can pyramid in the banquet hall and then they had a truck pushing contest out in the parking lot and they sat next to the little old Sunday school teachers uh, from church. It was incredible. The birth of my kids was awesome, but I think this was the happiest day of my life. Everybody dancing, feasting, having fun. We had something like 500 guests. 500, so you may say, well, why so many people? Which, by the way, is a question that Susan's father kept asking me. Um, but it's a question worth asking of this parable. Why does the king invite so many? Why does the king want beggars and invalids at his banquet? In other words, why does the king want people like you and me at his banquet? Why does God bother with people like us at all. You know, sometimes we answer as if God is insecure, demanding, easily offended. We say, well, God demands, he's a holy God and he demands respect. As if his pride is very is easily offended. But, but is God proud? Is that why he cares about the opinion of a tax collector or a prostitute drunk in a ditch somewhere outside of Las Vegas? Sometimes we talk as if the creator of all space and time is testing us in order to learn something about us. Well, our all-knowing Father in heaven is not testing us in order to learn something about us, but he is testing us in order that we would learn something about him and about ourselves. Well, anyway, why did this father and son want everyone to come to the banquet? Why did they want everyone to come to their banquet? Well, I guess because they just wanted everyone to share their joy. Why does God mess with you, care about you? Why does he discipline you, harass you? Well, maybe it's because he wants you to share his joy. You know, if you ask, why share the gospel, I would venture that you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe that the good news is good news. Because people want to share good news. May 28, 1983, I wanted everyone uh, to share my joy, and so I was just stoked to invite people to my banquet. And so I did not say, excuse me, friend, could I have a moment of your time? Have you carefully considered where you'll be the night of May 28, 1983? Because you know it could be too late and you need to decide softly and tenderly, I am calling, calling for you to come to my banquet. No, I just said, hey dude, you gotta come to my banquet, you gotta come to my party. We're gonna have beer and roast beef and maybe even truck pushing, you gotta come to my party. And I did not say, dude, come to my party or my dad will burn your city. And you better dress appropriately because if you don't, he'll cast you out into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. If I would have said that, I don't think anybody would have come to my banquet. Or if they did, oh, I don't know that they would be able to taste what was being served. I mean, they would be so self-conscious, they couldn't be party conscious. Fear would wreck the banquet. You say, well, yeah, but Peter, all those things happen in this story. Burn cities, outer darkness, fear. Yes, but that's not the message of the messengers. That's the prerogative of the king. He said, but yeah, right, but, but, but it ought to make us wonder, shouldn't it? It ought to make us wonder, what's up with the king? That's a good question. What's up with this king? And what's up with these people? 
Who in their right mind wouldn't want to go to the king's banquet? Especially if they've been invited for a long time. In that day, when a wealthy person would throw a party or banquet, they would send out a general invitation, initial invitation, telling people about the banquet, which they would accept. And then, when the cattle were slaughtered and the bread was baked and everything was baked, everything was ready, they sent out another wave of messengers saying, everything's ready, uh, come to the banquet, come to the feast. The Jews had been invited to the banquet for 1,500 years. And now the bridegroom, the son of the king, had arrived, and they didn't seem to care. More than that, some of them were just downright angry. In, in, in the story, one group just didn't seem to care. They were preoccupied with their farm, their business. They were preoccupied with the city that they were building. They were preoccupied with themselves and didn't care for what was being served. What were they serving? Well, probably like roast lamb, bread, red wine, the love of the father, the joy and the love that the father and son uh, shared and that he planned to share with his bride. A second group, a second group, however, they, they did care. They were downright offended. They even killed the messengers. Who would be so offended by a party invitation that they would kill the messengers? Well, maybe this king is really intent on inviting everyone. Imagine if I invited everyone to my party. Imagine if I ran into some military compound in northern Syria run by ISIS militants and I just began screaming, dude, you gotta come to the banquet. We're gonna have like roast beef and beer and maybe drug pushing. Well, I wouldn't live long. They would assume that I had just come to take even though I had only come to give. And now you may say, yeah, right, 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 Peter, but in the story, the king did destroy those murderers, and he did burn their city, and that's true, and it's far from being like a, an idle threat. In 40 years from this date, the Romans will burn the temple to the ground and destroy the Jews that had remained in the city. <laughs> But this is, a, this is an interesting thought. If the king burns their city, maybe he's also burning his city. Because doesn't the king own all the cities? So maybe he suffers as they suffer. And if he burns their city, they will have to leave their city on the highway out of their city. And they can no longer be preoccupied with their city, that is the life that they have built. And, 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 and you might say, yeah, 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 but they're destroyed, destroyed. Well, the word translated destroy is apolumi. It's also translated lose. So, so you can also translate they are, they are lost. Jesus has already told us you must lose apolumi, you must lose your life in order to find it. It's equally true that you must lose your life in order to party. People that are preoccupied with their own life, their, their ego, their city, what they're doing themselves, well, they just stink at, at parties. That's why people get wasted at parties so they can forget themselves. And Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the spirit, let the spirit waste you. And then, and then you can really party. Well, the verb apolumi in this exact form, apolation is used in three other places in scripture, I looked them all up. They're all in reference to folks that get wasted by God. First, the folks in, in Sodom, and you know Ezekiel says Sodom will be restored. And then the folks in Noah's day who missed the ark, to whom Jesus descends and preaches in First Peter. And then the Israelites who died in the desert and descended into Sheol, and God promises still to bring them into the land, and so all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans 11, they were all lost. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. The apololos from apolumi, the, the having been destroyed. Well, anyway, the king burns their city, and then he sends out 
more servants. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, dang, then, I mean, by now, isn't the supper getting cold? You would think the supper is, is getting cold, right? It takes a while to do all of that. But this is an utterly fascinating thing about this banquet. It's like once and for all. It's like always now ready. Inside the king's banquet hall, it's like everything is eternal. But outside the gates of that banquet hall, people are trapped in time. Well, after the king has burned the city, he tells more messengers to go to the de-exodus of the hadas, literally the exit way of the way. It was the place the main road left the city. So it was like where you would go if someone happened to burn your city. Or it was where you would go if you were poor and crippled and weren't allowed into the city and had to beg money from the people that came in and out of the city. Uh, Picture the outer courts of the temple where the Gentiles and and the lame were, were kept. Or the gates of Jerusalem where the poor begged for money. Or the border crossing between Tijuana and San Diego, then, then, then you get the picture. The king says those who were invited were not worthy. So go now to the Dexodas of the Hadas and invite all you meet. And Jesus points out that the servants gathered all, both bad and good, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with gas. And I hope you caught that. It appears that the thing that makes you worthy of this banquet has nothing to do with whether you're bad or good. And everything to do with whether or not you're hungry for what's being served. Blessed are those who are hungry for a roast lamb, broken bread, red wine, the, the fruit of the vineyard, the life, joy, and love of the Father and the Son, the grace of God, it's what's for dinner. But now in verse 11, now the story gets weird. Verse 10, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I think that just scares people so stinking bad they're terrified to ask any questions. But Jesus wants us to ask questions. He wants us to wrestle the word. So who the rip is that guy? And why did the king call him friend? And how did he get into the banquet hall? And why didn't he answer the king's question? And what is this wedding garment thing? And how did these beggars and bag ladies get garments appropriate for a royal wedding? And by the way, where is the bride? And where is the son of the king, the groom? And what the rip does it mean? Many are called and few are chosen. You know, commentators just butcher the text here trying to make sense out of it. But if we assume the scriptures are authoritative and Jesus, well, he wasn't just nuts. I think the story gives us the answer. The many in the story is what? All, all, he called everybody, it's, it's all. All are called, Jews and Gentiles, good and, and bad, I mean, even guys like Romans who were absolutely the bottom of the barrel to the, to the Jews. In, in the New Testament, the, the Greek word translated many is often and can be translated all. So, so all are called to the banquet. Paul writes, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. But Jesus just said many are called and few are chosen. Well, well, how few? 
Who are the few? What are they chosen for? Because you know, the few cannot be the beggars and bag ladies now dressed in royal robes in the banquet hall because the banquet hall is filled. That's not few, that's many. And it can't be the people that didn't go to the banquet that he initially called because that's uh, many and not few. In the story, all are called. If we go by the story, one is chosen. The one man chosen by the king to be cast into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. The one that the king calls friend. The one that opens not his mouth. To quote Isaiah 53, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the unrighteousness of us all. Verse 11, through him the Lord makes many to be accounted, reckoned, righteous. Maybe, maybe it's that one. Maybe he didn't get into the banquet because he had always been in the banquet. He had always been in the hall. Uh, maybe he had no wedding garment because he had given his garments to those who had none. Maybe the one that is chosen is the son of the king. And maybe the many that are called is the bride, is us. You know, Jesus told this story earlier in his ministry in Luke chapter 14. But now when he tells it, he changes some of the, the characters. Now, just four days before he's crucified, standing on the Temple Mount, where Father Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, Jesus adds this bit about the chosen one. All are called, but who is the chosen one? Well, you know, the whole Old Testament is basically the story of God whittling down the people of Israel in search of the chosen one, the promised seed. Who is the chosen one? Well, in just four days at the feast, the Passover feast, the people of Israel, whom God had called a harlot and a bride, they strip Jesus, flog Jesus, mock him as king. They march him to the edge of the city on Mount Zion where they bind him, hands and feet. And just like the man in Jesus' story is bound hands and feet, just like Isaac is bound to the wood by Abraham in Genesis 22:9 on Mount Moriah, which is now called Mount Zion. They bind him hands and feet with, with leather and nails to a tree in a garden outside the city on the slopes of Mount Zion. They crucify him naked. And this is something that all four Gospels make a really big deal out of. The soldiers that crucify him, four according to John, they divide his garments between them, casting lots over his tunic. Then and there, at the deoxidas of the hadas, at the gate of the city, as the son of the king, the chosen one, hung on the tree, the sky grew black from noon till three. It was outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. At 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of Psalm 22. Every Jew would know Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. This is verse 18. They divide my garments between them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 24, the Lord has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried. I don't think, I don't think God forsook Jesus, but I am convinced Jesus felt forsaken by God. Why? Well, because he was wearing our unrighteousness. This is a picture painted by Sarah that I have on my office wall. Um, do you see the words covering his, uh, his flesh, carved into his flesh? Iniquity, fear, depression, addiction. Sarah, who's right over there, painted that picture. But in the picture, do you see, he's stripped of his righteousness and he's wearing our unrighteousness in the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. Like Paul wrote, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him, like dressed in him. And him, 
addressed in us. I mean, it's like Jesus enters our faithlessness with his faithfulness and praises God. Psalm 22, verse 25, keep reading. From you uh, comes my praise in the great congregation. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord. Verse 29, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. That's all who weep and gnash their teeth in the outer darkness outside the new Jerusalem. Well, the naked son of the king, hanging on the tree in the garden in outer darkness outside the city, he quotes Psalm 22. And then he cries out, it is finished, and delivers up his spirit. The curtain in the temple rips, the tombs are opened. Seeing this, Matthew 27, 54, the soldiers that crucified him, who now wear his garments, they are the first to confess. Truly, this was the Son of God, the Son of the King. And do you see it? At that moment, there was a transaction. Death was transferred to that, from them uh, to Jesus, and life was transferred from Jesus to them. To put it in theological terms, righteousness was imputed to them. And do you think they were proud of that righteousness? They knew it was a gift. Truly, this was the Son of God. That's faith. Faith is reckoned as righteousness. Because faith is what makes us right. Right, right. And, and the lack of faith is what makes us wrong. Faith in love. And God is love. And that's what's for dinner. Body broken, blood shed, bread and wine, Passover lamb, the love of God broken and poured out. It creates faith. It creates us. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and the clothes make the man. Adam, humanity. Remember Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve hid themselves in the trees? They made clothes out of leaves from the trees. They hid their shame from each other, and yet they were meant to cover each other. Adam was to cover Eve, and that's a reference to how God in Christ longs to cover you, cover me, how he longs to complete us with his very self. They hid their unfaithfulness from each other, and they hid themselves from God. And then you remember what happens? God finds them and he covers them. He covers them with the skin of an animal. So that animal was a sacrifice. And I bet that sacrifice was a lamb. Ezekiel 16, seven, I made you grow like a plant of the field, says God to Jerusalem. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And then you know how this story goes. Harlotry, redemption, us. <laughs> Isaiah 61.10, God has clothed me, writes Isaiah, with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Revelation 7, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was great her, that means it was imputed to her, it was given to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The clothes make the man, Adam, mankind, for at the cross, God and Christ clothes us with himself. That's why Paul tells us 
and you they're getting baptized, pay attention right now. That's why Paul tells us to put off the old man and put on the new man, Ephesians 4. Put on Christ, Galatians 3. Put on love, Colossians 3. Do you see what that means? You can't make love. You must put him on. Ephesians 1, 4. God chose us in him, singular, before the foundation of the world. Us, many, him, one. Karl Barth writes this. Jesus Christ, then, is not merely one of the elect, but the elect of God. Of none other of the elect can it be said that his election carries in it and, and with it the election of the rest. Jesus Christ, he writes later, is the rejected of God. For God makes himself rejected. God makes himself rejected in him and has himself alone tasted the depths, all, the, the depths all that rejection means and necessarily involves. We know of only one who was abandoned in this way. This one is Jesus Christ. And he was lost and found again in order that none should be lost apart from him. So all are called, and one is chosen to redeem all and make us all in the image of God, and he is the word of God through whom we are all created. From the foundation of the world, God said, let us make Adam in our own image. Let, let, he said, let us. Now that's gotta be at least two, right? Two that are kinda like one. See, you might have been thinking, okay, Peter, this was a nice idea. Many can mean all, but can few mean one? Well, the English word for few is not a direct equivalent of the Greek word for few, oligos, which is also translated little or small. So I don't know for sure whether it can mean one or not. But whatever the case, maybe it wasn't only the king that was doing the choosing. Or only the son that was chosen. God said let us make man. And remember, the king called the one that was chosen friend. What the heck is that about? This is a fascinating word in Greek because it also means comrade or, or co-worker. It's someone that you are working on a project with. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I choose. And so the father isn't the only one that does the choosing. And the son isn't the only one that is chosen to suffer. You know, when Abraham climbed uh, Mount Zion, it appears that Isaac must have been, well, a young man. And so, so it seems that Isaac agreed with his father. That is, father and son both chose and were chosen to suffer. Abraham suffered at least as much as Isaac. I think that's kind of hard for us to understand because we live in a pretty depraved culture where people will abort their babies even in the eighth and ninth month of pregnancy. And if that was you, you must believe right now that God covers you with his grace and his mercy and his righteousness. But I want you to see this. In our society, people sacrifice children because they don't want them. Abraham wanted Isaac more than he wanted his very self. Isaac was Abraham's hope, his life, his heart. Isaac was the promised blessing and chosen seed that Abraham had pursued all of his life. Isaac was literally Abraham's laughter. That's what Isaac means. But in faith that God himself was good, Abraham and Isaac both chose and were chosen to suffer. And then do you remember what happened? A strange God-man showed up on Mount Moriah stopped them, provided a lamb, and they called that spot God will provide. 2,000 years later, on that very same spot, the God-man tells the story. He's the son of the king, and they, the father and son, will provide. They will provide our righteousness. Remember what God said to Abraham? He said, Abraham, because you did this, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham is chosen, and all are called.
At the cross, two in one is chosen. Uh, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, like Paul says. Few is chosen and all are called. The Father chooses suffering for the love of you. And the Son chooses suffering for the love of you. At the cross, they both conspire to clothe the entire world in their righteousness. You know, there's some pretty bad theology out there. And some of it says the cross is about an angry God who just is really, he gets his, his pride injured really easily and he gets all upset and he was upset and he took out all of his anger uh, that should have been directed at us. They took it out on, on his son and now he feels better about us. Well, God is angry at our lack of love. But that's exactly why God so loved that he gave his son. And the son gives his father, and they both give their spirit. So the cross isn't what God needs to love us. The cross is what we need in order to love God. And theologians will never understand all that transpired at the cross. Romans 11 tells us that. But you can know that God the Father and God the Son conspired and freely chose to love you that you might surrender to love and you too might love and share in their joy. You see, you could not be more loved. At the cross, God in Christ Jesus took your unrighteousness, your hell, and gave you his righteousness, faith and love, the capacity to enjoy his banquet. You can't understand all that God did for you on the cross. But you can see this and you can understand this, that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that all believing in him might not be lost. I explained this one time to a friend of mine and she said, oh, thank you so much because I had this vision and I could have scared to share because in the vision, Jesus was walking through the slums naked and she said, now I understand. He was clothing the people in the slums and, and, then, and then she wrote this. She wrote, it's the man with no wedding garment. It's the lamb of God who has no garment. He is the garment. She, she, she understood. I have several friends that have been sexually abused that have had encounters with Jesus in which he clothed them. I think they understood. I prayed with one friend for, for years ago through this horrid memory of rape and abuse where she was tied to a bed and, and left there. That night, she had a dream, a vivid dream. In the morning, she called me and said, Peter, I gotta tell you about this dream. I was tied to the bed and Jesus came into the room and he was wearing this beautiful white robe and she said, he walked over to the bed, he untied me, he picked me up, he carried me over, set me in a chair and I felt entirely safe because at that point he took off his white robe and he wrapped it around me and then Peter I washed from that place of safety I washed as he went back over to the bed tied himself to the bed they came in and they did everything to Jesus they had done to me she understood often Jesus would appear to her and clothe her in visions and then he would give her a look a look in the mirror in order to see herself and she would gasp she'd gasp out loud because in the mirror she would see herself dressed in this beautiful white wedding gown she understood once she had this absolutely horrifying memory when we were praying for him, because of it, utterly despised herself. I remember it was like three in the morning and she just cried out in agony, what do I do? And I remember not knowing what to tell her and it just suddenly occurred to me, I said, pray this, pray. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So she just screamed it out and then she got incredibly silent for she had an amazing experience. She saw herself dressed as Bonnie Castle in the movie, like a, like a harlot. She saw herself nailed to a tree. And then she saw herself dressed like a church lady, like Jane Russell, the imposter, and she was also nailed to the tree. And then she saw Jesus nailed to the same tree, and she watched as they all died. And then all at once she saw herself standing at the base of the tree in a beautiful white wedding gown. She understood. Do you understand? The wedding garment is a wedding dress. All are called, and God has chosen to suffer the pain of all in order to romance all to himself in Christ Jesus. From 
start to finish, first to last. That's been his plan, Alpha and the Omega, all, all along. This week at our board meeting, we talked about this, and Nate Bullis, he said something fascinating. He said, hey, Peter, have you ever wondered, have you, have you wondered why the king pointed this guy out in front of all those other people, the one man, naked man, without a wedding? Why did he point him out in front of all those people? And I said, well, gosh, I, I'm not sure, but, but I, I imagine it was the same reason that he had Jesus crucified at the edge of the city right when millions of people were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast so that all could look on the one that they had pierced. The very same reason that he calls us to this place week after week to sit here and look at body broken and bloodshed. Because it's when we see Jesus Christ and him crucified that the transaction happens. Self-righteousness, which by the way is unrighteousness, is stripped away. And Christ's righteousness is imputed to us so we can party. Last week, the word I preached stripped you of self-righteousness. I mean, preaching, I felt kind of bad, but, but I suggested that every time you twist the truth, turn love into law, or even think an arrogant thought, you take the life of Christ on the tree. Last week, the word I preached undressed you. This week, the word I preach, I pray it dresses you. Do you understand? Every time you speak the truth because you like the truth, Every time you love because you want to love, every moment in which you are grateful, God himself is dressing you with Jesus the Christ. See, the cross intersects your every moment. Every bad choice, every bad choice you make, <laughs> it's your fault. And it's already condemned at the cross. And every good choice is God's doing eternal in the heavens, but being imputed to you through the cross. In other words, all righteousness is imputed righteousness. And that means that you have no self left to hide, left to defend, left to fix. Because you watched it crucified with him on that cross. N no self left to defend, and you have another self for which you can only be grateful. And that self is indestructible. So you can stop worrying about yourself and enjoy yourself. <laughs> you can join the party. You must not be proud of yourself. However, you must be grateful for yourself. <laughs> what a great self. Thank you, God. That's what makes you the life of the party because you, you want to share yourself. And once you like the party, the king's party, you won't be able to stop advertising the king's party. No one will have to tell you, preach the gospel. You won't be able to stop preaching the gospel for you will want to share your joy with everything and everyone. I mean, I mean you, you love the king, you love the son, and you love what they're serving at their banquet. Grace, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> and so he took the bread at the feast and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. And remember last week we said, it's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So I've just been sent here to tell you, come to the banquet. All is ready in Jesus' name. Amen. The dark cups are juice. No, they're wine. The light cups are juice. They're both the love of God for you. And so we claim the name of Jesus. Because there's power in the name of Jesus. And, and Lord God, I don't think that's because of the way we pronounce it. It's because of what that name means. It means God is salvation. 
And so, Lord God, we claim that name over our lives. And uh, Lord, as we claim it, just claiming it, just, just as we proclaim it, it breaks chains. So break every chain, Lord God, and set us free to party. I thank you that you have and that you are and that you are revealing the glory of that name. May you be glorified, Lord Jesus. Amen. So now uh, stay, stay standing for just a minute. When I was in California in seminary, I worked at Bel Air Presbyterian Church and we had an associate pastor there named Claire Crawford and she used to talk about how at Christmas she loved to go down to Beverly Hills and go shopping. She couldn't afford any of the dresses. She just liked the ambiance and the pageantry and looking at these beautiful dresses and I think it was Nordstrom's. And she said this one night she was on the top floor looking at these amazing dresses. Uh, there was a ding, the elevator door opened and this bag lady walked out. And she walked over to these beautiful dresses and began looking at the beautiful dresses and then she noticed this clerk. The clerk noticed the bag lady and this lady clerk walked over to the bag lady and she said, may I help you? And the bag lady said yes, and then the clerk started helping the bag lady, Claire said. I mean, matching dresses with her eyes and what would look good on her and what would be, what would be her preference. And together they picked out um, three dresses, and then the clerk said, would you like to go try them on? And so the bag lady and the clerk went to the dressing room, and Claire said she was so intrigued, she ran to the dressing room, put her ear on the, on the wall on the other side and listened to what was saying. She said it was remarkable that this clerk helped this bag lady try on all these beautiful dresses and then after a time she heard the bag lady said I I've changed my mind I'm not buying any of these dresses and she walked out of the dressing room and the clerk followed her and she stopped her and she gave her her card and she said oh it was my privilege to serve you if you ever come to Nordstrom again would you allow me uh, to help you look at dresses I love that story because I just think that must have been the spirit of Jesus in that lady and she must have known something that I hope you know. All are called and one is chosen to dress them all. And so wouldn't you like to, would like to help him? You see, he's calling you to be a messenger, to help him. And that's not a painful thing, that's a, a blessed thing. Dude, Come to the banquet. <laughs> well, today we're going down to the river to baptize some folks. Baptism symbolizes what that bag lady was longing for. And that is that you're taking off your rags and you're putting on the royal robes. That you're surrendering your self-righteousness and you're claiming God's righteousness, his love over you. You're confessing that he is your savior and he is your Lord and uh, you want to go to the party. It starts even right now. So in the name of Jesus, may you believe the gospel and live the gospel.